So tonight we're going to be looking at the story of Esther. I invite you to turn to page 388. Put a finger in that. That's Esther 4. Just put a finger in that and just, just keep it there. Just hold it right there. Page 388, Esther 4. So just to review where we've been, last week we learned about the prophet Huldah and the word that she gave to the king Josiah. And she said that even though Josiah had tried to turn the nation back, even though he himself had repented, that destruction was still going to come because his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather reaching back, the kings of Judah, had led the people far from God, and so they were going to be taken into captivity. They were going to be punished. Their society was going to be destroyed. And so the story of Esther takes place in captivity. The nation has been captives now for about two to three generations. They've adapted. They're living there. They're in that space. And when we read the book of Esther, there are five characters that we're going to be paying attention to. There is the king. His name is Ahasuerus, also Xerxes. All right, that's him. That's the king. And then he is a queen named Vashti. And then he has a right-hand man named Haman, all right? Ahasuerus, Vashti, Haman. And then there is a Jew named Mordecai. And Mordecai has adopted his young cousin, Esther, to be his daughter. Her parents have died. She was an orphan, so he took her in. So those are the characters, and as we tell the story, pay attention to who they are and how they go around, all right? So... Boys and girls, listen now to the story of Esther. Once upon a time, in the land of the Medes and Persians, there was a king named Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus was very proud of all that he had. His kingdom, it is said, stretched from India all the way to Ethiopia. And to show off his kingdom, he decided to have a party. And not just a little party, mind you, a big, blowout, six-month-long party. A party that stretched across his kingdom to take people over here and show them his treasures, to take them there and show them the treasures, to take them there and show them all of his power and his might. And after the end of six months, you would think, wow, whew, that's a lot of partying. But no! It wasn't enough. They did one more week at the palace itself so everyone could see the curtains of linen that were wrapped with scarlet so that they could see the mosaic on the floor that was made with mother of pearl and other precious stones so that they could drink, not just goblets, my friends, but drink from flagrants. So on one side of the palace, the king is having a party with his guys. And on the other side of the palace, Vashti is having a little party with the women. And the guys over here are drinking and making merry. And they get this idea. Hashuera says, you know what I should do? I should get my wife to come over here and y'all can see how hot she is. That'd be awesome. So he asks his servants, go get my wife. Tell her I need her to show how hot she is. So the servants go over to Vashti and they say, um, he, he wants you to come over there and show them how hot you are. And Vashti at the time was wearing her Smash the Patriarchy t-shirt. 
And so she was like, yeah, that's a no. That's a hard pass. Go over and dance around in front of your drunken friends. No, I'm not doing that. Servants go back to the other side of the palace. Um, yeah, she's, she's, not, she's not coming. And the hatchy is like, what? Oh, man. Oh. And this guy's like, wait, what? She's not coming? This is bad. Because if our wives hear that your wife didn't listen to you, they're not going to listen to us. This, this whole thing could go bad. And so, you know, we make great decisions when we're drunk. So here's one. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's say Vashti can't be queen anymore. And then we're going to have a contest. And we're going to go out and find all the pretty girls in the kingdom. And you can pick one of those to be the queen. And Hashworth was like, yeah. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, he kind of sobered up and was like, wait, what? I don't have a queen anymore? Oh, mm. All right, let's have the contest. Let's find the pretty girls in all the land. So they go out, and they look out for all the pretty girls in the whole kingdom from India to Ethiopia, and they gather them together. And in this dragnet for the beauty contest, Esther is caught. Esther is caught up in the net. Little Esther, the cousin of Mordecai, is brought to the king's palace. And Esther, along with all the other girls, is put through a 12-month beauty regimen. 12 months. Meanwhile, Mordecai waits, and he walks, and he gets to know the palace, and he checks in. How is she doing? Is she doing okay? Well, she's doing great, because when her time comes to be presented to King Ahasuerus, he picks her. She's the one who gets to be the queen. Well, this means Mordecai continues to hang around the palace, picking up odd jobs here and there, getting to know people. And while he's hanging out in the palace, he overhears about an assassination plot that two people are planning. And so he goes and he reports that two people are planning to kill the king. And sure enough, the plot is found to be true. The two people are killed off, danger averted. Now, as Mordecai hangs out at the palace, the right-hand man of the king, whose name is Haman, goes back and forth every day doing his job, carrying his lunch bucket, going back and forth to work every day. Everybody else sees Haman, they're like, whoa, Haman, Haman, good to see you, Haman, Haman, sir. Not Mordecai. Haman walks by, Mordecai's like. And the other servants are like, why don't you bow down? You got, like, come on, this is not good. This is not going to go well for you. You got to bow down. It's Haman. And Mordecai's like, yeah, I'm, I'm a Jew. And scholars think he said this for one of two reasons. One, he was saying, I don't bow down to anybody except God. Good, holy reason more likely reason, Haman was the descendant of an Amalekite king named Agag. And Agag sought to destroy all of the Jews, particularly the tribe that he was from, that Mordecai descended from. So Mordecai descended from the people that Haman's ancestors tried to kill. So it would be a little like saying to a Jew, when the descendant of Adolf Hitler walks by, you really should bow. Yeah, it's not going to happen. 
So, back and forth, Haman walks to work. Mordecai's hanging out. And this drives Haman crazy. He hates this. Everybody else bows down. Everybody else knows how important he is. Everybody knows how awesome he is. This guy doesn't. And this just gets under his skin to the point where he says, I got to get rid of this guy. And then he thinks, wait, I'm bigger than that. I should get rid of his entire people group, not just him. So he gets a lot, the pure, P-U-R, and he casts a lot to figure out what would be a good time for a genocide. And it comes out 12 months in the future, and he thinks, excellent. I have time to plan. (laughs) And so he goes to King Ahasuerus, and he says, oh, king, you may want to know that there is a people group that's been distributed throughout the kingdom, and they don't follow your laws. In fact, they've got their own laws, and they're kind of undermining you at every chance they get. And because I am so loyal to you, O king, it would do me such an honor if I could just take care of them for you. And the king says, wow, that's so nice. Thanks, that'd be awesome. Again, not a clear thinker. (laughs) So... Haman, having the signet ring of the king, having the permission of the king, issues an edict that goes out from India to Ethiopia and all of the languages represented in the kingdom that says, on this day of this month, all of the Jews in the kingdom will be killed, destroyed, annihilated. Yes, he says it three times in three different ways just to be sure everybody gets it. This is what's going to happen. Now, Scholars think that he may have done a bit of a play of words to get Ahasuerus to agree because there's a word that means like, you know, just take care of, like enslave, like limit, like demote, like move them out to the country. And then there's a word that sounds very similar to it that means to kill, to destroy, to annihilate. So he could have gone to Ahasuerus and said, I'm just gonna gonna take care of this for you. And the edict is like, I'm gonna take care of this for you. So the edict goes out. And the Jews are stunned. They've been in exile here in this kingdom now for a few generations. They've made good relationships. They've done what Jeremiah said. They have built cities and lived in them. They've planted gardens. They've They've done what was asked of them to just live here until the Lord comes and rescues them. They've done everything they were supposed to do. It wasn't supposed to turn out this way. And that's where we pick up the story In chapter 4, this part I'll read. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. 
Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and entreat for her people. Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and said to him, gave him a message from Mordecai saying, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your family's, father's family will perish. And here's the most famous line in the book of Esther. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So now the plot is in Esther's hands and she has to think about how she's going to do this. The first thing is to get access to the king without being killed. And so after the fast is done on the third day, she goes in just outside the court and the king sees her and he extends his scepter to her and she walks in and he says, oh, what can I do for you? I'll do anything for you. What can I do for you? And she says, if you'd like, if it please the king, I would like to host a banquet for you. Oh, and Haman. And he says, lovely. And so they make a plan to have a banquet that night. Now, Esther is having this first banquet to see if the king still has affection for her, if he still has loyalty to her, because before she makes the big ask, she has to know what she's working with here. So they have the banquet. It's the king. It's the queen. It's Haman. They're sitting. They're eating. They're drinking. The king says, what can I do for you? I'll, I'll do anything for you. What would you like? She says, well, actually, if we could have another banquet tomorrow night and get all together again, then I'll tell you what I want. And the king said, great. And Haman said, awesome, another banquet for me. So Haman goes out of the palace and he's all happy because he just had a little intimate meal with the king and the queen and he is so special and he is so important and everybody likes him. And then he says, Mordecai. <laughs> and once again, Mordecai does not bow. Like he doesn't even like do the little head nod like, 
Nothing. So by the time Haman gets home, he calls his wife over and he calls his friends over and he says, look, am I not the coolest? And they go, oh yeah, you are so the coolest. He says, have I not done the most for the king? You have totally done the most for the king. Well, none of that means anything, but this guy's like Mordecai, whatever about me. And they say, well, you know, why, why wait a year? How about you take that guy out now? Here's what you should do. You should build enormous gallows like in your backyard and then just get permission to the king and just like take him out. He was like, yeah, it's a great idea. And the word that's translated here as gallows is actually an instrument that was a giant spike upon which people would be impaled. Yeah. And it was even a, more of a disgrace because the body would be left up there and would not get a proper burial and the birds would go at it and it would just be there. So, Haman has a new plan. Meanwhile, back at the palace, Ahasuerus is having a hard time sleeping. And so he says, hey, could somebody read me my favorite stories about me? <laughs> And they say, yes. And so they get out the scroll of the annals of all the cool things that he's done and have happened to him. And they get to the point in the scroll where they talk about the assassination attempt. And they talk about how Mordecai was the one that let him know and he was the one that saved the king's life. And the king says, wait, 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 wait. There was a guy who saved my life. Have we done anything for him? Have we honored him? Have we, you know... Like, giving him a t-shirt or something? Like, is there anything that we've done for this guy? They're like, no, no, um, no. He's like, hmm. And just at that moment, Haman comes in to ask the king's permission to kill Mordecai. And the king says, wait, 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 before you say anything, Haman, what would you do? Oh, let me put it this way. What, would, what should I do if I really wanted to honor somebody? And Haman's thinking, oh, this has got to be about me because I am the coolest in the land. And so he says, here's what you got to do, king. You got to take some of your old kingly robes and you got to put them on the man. You got to take an old crown, put it on him. You got to put him in your chariot. You got to put him behind your horses. And then you got to have other noble people like run alongside and say, this guy's the coolest in the land. This is what happens when the king likes you. Don't you want to be liked by the king like this guy is? This guy's awesome. That's what you should do. <laughs> and King Ahasuerus says, Haman, great idea. Could you do that for Mordecai? <laughs> and he's like, what? <laughs> of course I will, your king. And he does it. He has to spend the entire day running alongside the chariot, pointing at Mordecai, going, this guy is the greatest. Isn't he wonderful? He's the coolest in the land. <laughs> He gets home at the end of the night, and he is so exhausted, he is so frustrated, and his wife makes this very wise observation. She's like, this is not going to go well for you. <laughs> you see this Mordecai fellow? He's, uh, he's part of the Jews, and mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I don't think it's going to go well for you. And just as she says that, the servants come up and they say, oh, Haman, it's time for you to go to the second banquet with the king and the queen. Oh, great. He didn't have time to shower. didn't have time to put on new clothes. He heads on over to the banquet. He's sitting there. <sighs> All right. Well, miserable day, but at least he's with the king. He's with the queen. He's got good food. He's got lots to drink. 
It's going to be all right. <sighs> the king looks at his beloved Esther and says, Esther, now please tell me, what can I do for you? How can I make your life better? How can I improve anything? Whatever you ask, up to half of my kingdom, I will give it to you. And Queen Esther says, well, there is someone who is plotting to kill me and all of my people. If he was only going to push us to the margins, if he was only going to move us to the country, if he was only going to treat us as slaves, I may not have said anything. But the truth is, he wants to kill, destroy, annihilate me and my people. And King Ahasuerus is livid. He is irate. Who would do this? Who would threaten my king? And Esther points across the table and she says, Haman! And Haman's like, wait, what? <laughs> and the king is so mad at Haman that he stomps out into the palace garden. And Haman goes to Esther and he's like, please, 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 you've got to help me. You've got to save my life. And Esther's reclining on a couch and he's begging. And then he just throws herself on top of Esther on the couch as the king comes back in. <laughs> and the king says, Oh, will you also assault my wife in my presence? And the text says that the words left the mouth of the king and they went all over the face of Haman because he knew that his end had come. And then a servant. Uh, king? Yes. Haman happens to have some gallows in his backyard. <laughs> the king says, excellent, take him, put him on his own gallows. And Haman is dragged, kicking and screaming, and he is put to death on his own tool of death. And then whew, Esther has to say, now what do we do? We've got to do something. We have to save my people and so the king summons Mordecai and he takes his signet ring and he gives it to Mordecai and he says, you have to write an edict that undoes the other edict. So Mordecai writes an edict that says, on the day that the Jews were supposed to be destroyed, instead, they get to defend themselves completely. They get to be victorious over whoever they want. They get the right hand. They are supported by the king. And so on the day on which the Jews were supposed to be destroyed completely, they instead had victory over their enemies. And the ten sons of Haman were also put in their father's backyard. And so the feast of Purim, the feast of the casting of lots, is celebrated every year to remember the time that the lots were cast for destruction, but they turned into victory. This is the book of Esther. Now, you may have noticed that throughout all of the storytelling, throughout the entire reading of chapter four, there was a significant word missing. The word is God. Kinda important. So why is there a book in the Bible that doesn't have the word God in it? Well, 
The author, Frederick Buechner, says this, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. And throughout all of the book of Esther, there are all these coincidences. Esther gets chosen. Mordecai hears about the plot. Haman walks back and forth past Mordecai. The king has a sleepless night, just happens to hear this passage from his life about Mordecai, just as Haman comes in. And instead of Mordecai being killed on the gallows, he gets lauded. And just after the big reveal that Haman is the one who's out to get him and the king's in the garden and he throws himself on, he comes in just as he's laying there on top of his wife. All of these coincidences. Now, this is a people in exile. This is a people who believe themselves to be abandoned by God. This is a people who had thought that they had ruined it that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-great-great-grandparents had ruined their relationship between them and God, and they were now in exile. They were the minority. They were the foreigner. They were on the outside, and ever so it shall be. Did God even care? And so they hear this story and they see how God works even when he's hidden. And they tell this story every year. And in fact, the Jews this year, the Jews now who celebrate Purim, they get dressed up in costumes like the characters. And they do this thing. They read the entire book of Esther. And every time you say the name of a good guy like Mordecai, everybody goes, yay! And every time you say the name of a bad guy like Haman, everybody goes, boo! And they do this every year. And there's like special cookies and special treats. And it's a big party to remember that what was supposed to be a time of destruction turned into a time of victory. It's said that basically every Jewish fish can be boiled down to, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. <laughs> and so in the telling of this story again and again for this people in exile, they are reminded that in the long stretches of time when it seems like God is invisible, that God isn't up to anything, that God is not answering their prayers, that God is absent, in these long stretches of time, God is still at work. God is still working to save his people. God doesn't give up. I was talking with a young alum this week. She was back visiting Calvin and she wanted to talk with me because she's trying to figure out the next steps and she's got options and she's trying to choose the right one and she just doesn't know and it's a risk and should she do it and should she not do it? And as she was telling about the future, she started to talk about her past and how she ended up at Calvin. She's from a different country. And there was an interim class that went to her country and actually went to her hometown, which is a tiny little town, no one ever visits it, and they spent a week there. And because she could speak English, she was invited to be one of the translators for them. And so she went around with them the whole week and learned all about Calvin College, this place in America, and how awesome it was. And she went back to her parents and said, could I study in the States? And they were like, hmm, kind of expensive. I don't know. Well, you can apply. So she applied 
to come to Calvin College. And then she got in to Calvin College. And she was like, this is gonna be great. I wanna go to America. I'm not a Christian, this isn't my game, but these are cool people and this looks like a great place and I get to go to America. Have I mentioned America and how great that would be? And then the clock was ticking for her to get the financing. And it wasn't coming, it wasn't coming and she was like, well, it was a nice idea. And then just a couple of days before she had to make a decision to go somewhere else Someone from the Calvin College financial aid office called her and said, there's someone who wants to sponsor you and fill in that gap that's left in your finances. And so she came to Calvin. And she came to Calvin and she had amazing Christian professors and she had amazing Christian friends and she worshiped right here at Loft and she became a Christian. And she went back to her home country where being a Christian is like being a druid or something. It's like, I thought we outgrew that. I thought that was in the past. Is that really who you want to be now? You're weird. And so she's trying to figure out now, what's next for me? Where do I go? How do I grow my faith? I don't know. I'm really anxious. I'm really worried. And as she started to go then in the anxiety part about her future, I said, wait, 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 wait. I think what you just did was give me your testimony. And she said, what? I said, well, you know, the the story about interim class and then the story about your parents and the story about getting in and the finances and becoming a Christian, I'm I'm pretty sure that's your testimony. She was like, huh, yeah. (laughs) I said, well, here's the thing about testimonies. When we take time to look back at what God has done for us, and really spend some time observing all the ways in which he moved. We're able to look ahead to our future with a little more peace and a little more trust. And what he may be inviting you now to is a risk because the path isn't charted out for you and everyone is telling you to go this way because it's safe and you're pretty sure God's telling you to go this way because it's not. Well, it seems that from what we know about God in your life, he can carry you through that next risk. He can carry you through that next challenge. You know that passage in chapter four where Mordecai comes to Esther and he's like, look, this is your time. This is your moment. Who knows that you became queen for this moment right here. And she could have said, no, uh uh-uh. No, it was for the beauty treatments. She could have turned him down. She could have turned it away. But you know what happened in her childhood under Mordecai? I'm going to guess. Is that he told her the stories of her people. That she knew the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. She knew about Egypt. She knew about the Red Sea. She knew about Miriam and Aaron and Moses and Joshua She knew about the kings. She knew about Samuel. She knew about David. She knew about a God who keeps working to save his people. She knew about a God who blessed people who wrote out, who took a risk in his name. She knew about a God who honored people who obeyed him even when it cost them. She had been told these stories about her people's past. So when the time came for her to intervene for their future, she could do it. 
because she knew who God was. And on the third day, she has a banquet and everything changes because that's what happens on the third day. People who are destined for destruction, people who are bound for hell, people who are lamenting and mourning their sin, people who have no reason to have hope, on the third day, everything changes because on the third day, Jesus Christ rises from the dead and we are reminded once again that God is always up to something that our stories don't end in the tomb. Our stories don't end in destruction. And anybody can cast any lot they want, but our future is secure in the hands of God. And so, we gather for worship week in, week out, day in, day out. We sing the songs of our people day after day. We read the story again and again and again and again because we need to be reminded that the God who took care of our past is the God who holds us in our present and the God who is leading us into the future. And we are the people of a faithful God and we do not have to be afraid. He is the one who is always up to something. Blessed be his holy name. Amen.